0: And welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Sally LePage. In this episode, we're looking at carnivorous plants, how do they work, what lives inside the digestive juices, and even a future with carnivorous crops. There's something unnatural about carnivorous plants. We're so used to plants being at the bottom of the food chain that to see them trapping, killing and eating animals seems to go against the very laws of nature. But of course carnivory in plants is very real and has evolved multiple times in response to a lack of nutrients. One group of carnivorous plants are the pitcher plants, that's pitcher as in jug, not picture as in photo, and they're usually found in warm tropical habitats around the world. Dr Ulrika Bauer studies these plants at the University of Bristol to find out more about how they're able to successfully trap insects so easily. But before we get trapped in the details, I asked her, what does a pitcher plant even look like?
1: picture is a transformed leaf, a very radically transformed leaf. So people often think it's a flower because it's so elaborate, but it is part of the leaf. And it looks a bit like a cup or like a champagne flute. And if you imagine a champagne flute where on the top of the flute, where the rim is, you add a little roof over the top. So you have a little stalk at the rear and you have a little sort of flat It's like a
0: cocktail umbrella.
1: It's like the cocktail umbrella. So then you have your water reservoir and above that you have a bit of a rear section going up to hold a roof that is more or less horizontal depending on species that covers the pitcher. And that has an obvious reason because it prevents it being diluted and all the contents being flushed
0: out. So how does a pitcher plant catch an insect because this is what your research is on it's the biomechanics of it all because if I just went around holding a champagne flute out in the world I don't think I'd catch enough to get by
1: no you wouldn't you wouldn't we have done that experiment very much not quite champagne flutes but we've put plastic pictures next to real pictures actually to see if insects are attracted to the picture do they also get trapped by our fake pictures and no they don't So there's actually a multitude of different mechanisms in pitcher plants, how they trap insects. And not every species has all mechanisms, but most species will have more than one. So generally, there's no moving parts, right? So let's get that clear. So a normal pitcher plant has mainly just slippery surfaces around that champagne flute, both around the rim at the top and on the inner walls of that champagne flute, above the champagne level. But slippery surfaces can work on different principles. So most pitcher plants have some wax coating on the inside, and it's like a crystalline layer of wax. And what that does, it makes the surface really rough on a very fine, microscopic scale. So imagine a really fine sandpaper, really fine grain sandpaper. I don't know if you ever tried, but try taking a piece of sellotape and stick it to a fine-grained sandpaper it will not stick. You can press it down, it will not stick. And the reason being is because sellotape, like an insect foot pad, sticks to things because it makes good contact with the surface. So the better the contact with the surface, the better your sellotape will stick. So on a nice smooth glass plate, your sellotape will stick really strong because 100% of the sellotape area sticks to the glass. If you have this fine-grained sandpaper or this wax layer on the pitcher plant, you have microscopic scale surface with little mountains and little valleys. And the only bits that your sellotape will touch are the very tips of the mountains. And we're talking about like tiny, tiny roughness. So, so these wax crystals on the inside of the pitcher plant are like little thin platelets that stand on their end. So only the very thin side of the platelet is actually sticking out into the surface. And so most of the surface that you end up with is actually air.
0: So it's literally on a knife edge. These insects are on a bed of knife edges.
1: Yes, they are very much. And that means that maybe only less than 5% of their pad area is actually in contact with a bit of surface.
0: Wow. We'll put some pictures um, in the show notes if you want to have a closer look. So that's one way of making
1: a surface slippery.
0: The other way that pitcher plants use is
1: completely different, has nothing to do with that, but it uses water. So it's basically creating a water slide. So this pitcher plant surface, and this is the surface that looks like a collar and goes around the rim, like around the opening of the pitcher, right? This is a really unusual surface because it's very wettable. So you place a droplet on one edge and it immediately sucks up and spreads and forms this really thin water
0: film. Do all pitcher plants have the same mutation that allows them to have these wettable surfaces? There is no one single
1: simple mutation to make this. That would be too simple. So we just started about two years ago to look into the developmental biology underlying this surface. So we had exactly your question. Did the plants reinvent the wheel? Did they invent something crazy, or are they taking things that are common and widespread and putting them back together in a new way? And we know pretty much for sure now that that's the case. They take elements of plant surface development that are common, that we find all over the plants, and they recombine them in a new way. So it's a stage wise sequential process of development where different parts of the surface form at different times, where we basically have a stage where papillae form, and papillae are really common on plants. Are they bumps? Yeah, they're like little bumps. Normally cells are flat, and when you have papillae, they grow like little boobs. <laughs> and on the surface very much, they look like little boobs, they're like little, like, semicircular bumps. And then these can grow into a hair on a leaf surface, for example. Or in the case of the pitcher plant, they start growing parallel to the surface. They make a structure that looks very much, if you've ever seen a picture of shark's teeth, how they're like overlapping inside a shark's mouth. Yes, They look very much like that at some point.
0: Almost like roof tiles.
1: Yeah, like roof tiles, like overlapping tiles. And then in a follow-up state, this surface is then taken and basically stretched. So you end up with still an overlapping structure, but you have the tips of these teeth all fused into a ridge. So it's very complex.
0: I know you're saying that it's not just one mutation that causes obviously nothing in life is caused by one mutation, I'm sure. But do you ever see like weird mutant pictures where something has gone wrong and it just looks odd at the structure level?
1: We haven't found that yet, no, but we are hoping to find that. We just started looking into the genetics, so we've done two years of doing the microscopy to see what actually happens when the surface forms, So we had a master's student cutting open pictures at different stages and sticking the surfaces into a really high magnification electron microscope to look at it. And she then characterized all these stages. And we're now at the point where like, okay, we have a good idea what happens. So now we're starting to look at the genes. We now just have started extracting RNA, which is the part of the genome that's being read. So we're now starting to look at what is there in the rna what sequences are being read and used during different stages of development so we focus on like clearly defined stages like the forming of these little papillae boobs and then the elongation of the cells to stretch the surface
0: so you're looking at different points in time and presumably different parts of the plant as well because the genome is going to be the same within the individual plant Mm -hmm. but you're looking at oh this gene's just suddenly been switched on and that happens to coincide with all of these grooves being formed wonder if that's a gene to do with groove formation pretty much we're
1: fortunately not quite as much fishing in the dark as that so because as i said these things like this papilla formation is a very common widespread thing that happens so we know which genes are responsible for making papillae in flowers and so we have some idea of what to look for But of course, it could be a lot more complex. There could be a lot more things. But basically, you're right. That's what we're doing. And that hopefully gives us a set of genes of interest that could be doing something. And then the next step is actually going to be really exciting because we have a method that potentially could work to switch these genes on and off inside the plants while they're growing. It's kind of a genetic transformation, but it's not the sort of transformation where you transform a plant and then it's a transgenic plant for the rest of its life. But it's a temporary thing where you just, for two or three weeks, you express a gene or you suppress a gene, and then that effect wears off. So you basically give the plant some medication that switches the gene on in a way. And by doing that, we hopefully can then figure out what these genes do. And we then might hopefully see some surfaces where actually things have gone wrong because we up or down
0: regulated
1: a gene that does something in the surface development.
0: What is this method called? How does it work? So it's something that another lab in our building has developed,
1: actually. It uses carbon nanoparticles, so they're called carbon nanodots. And it uses these carbon nanoparticles as a vehicle to get genetic material into the plant. And these nanoparticles are naturally occurring in the world. They're everywhere. So it's not something crazy or toxic or whatever. They are just naturally everywhere. But they have found a way how they can basically modify them and tag a bit of genetic material on the end of it. And the neat thing about these nanodots are that they are generally taken up with the water and transported with the water stream in the plant. So, as you will probably know, you can spray water on a leaf and the plant will take it up. Spray fertilizer works that way. You spray your leaves and the plant takes up the fertilizer. And the water stream in the plant goes generally from the roof to the tip or in the leaf from the base of the leaf to the tip of the leaf. So if you apply your carbon nanodot solution with your genes at the base of a leaf, it moves to the tip of that leaf. It doesn't go the other way. So you can literally transform a single leaf on a single plant by
0: applying your nanodots just in that leaf base. So you're looking at completely non-genetically modified plants and it's only when you add these nanodots is any kind of genetic Correct. manipulation or fiddling around happening.
1: Correct. So we've done a trial with a pitcher plant where we just put a fluorescent protein gene, like a GFP, which you can just visualize that in a microscope,
0: right? Yeah, it glows green.
1: Yeah, it glows green, exactly. So we just put that nanodot solution with GFP tagged on it, put it on a pitcher plant leaf, and then wait a few days and take the picture and put it in a fluorescent microscope and you see green fluorescence in some of the cells.
0: So you don't have to even worry about where is it incorporating in the genome or... No, you don't. Any of the genome is literally just once it's inside the cell... It's being expressed. The cell will treat it as normal, yeah. Yeah, it's just being expressed along other things. Amazing. What is the big goal for the next five years for you? What's the future of picture plant research going to be?
1: Well, the big ambitious goal is to work out how the plant makes this crazy surface and then see if we can get completely different plants that are not carnivorous, make the same surface by messing with their genes. So we have a research grant at the moment that's a collaboration actually with Tanya that you're gonna talk to, to like see if we can use these and express them, let's say in a crop plant. Wouldn't it be cool if we would have crop plants, especially in the UK where it rains so much, that get slippery when it's wet? Our average apple that you bite into has seen about 30 to 35 pesticide applications before you bite into it, right? It's been sprayed against insects about 30 times. So if we could have a surface on the fruit or on the stem that leads to the fruit that repels insects, or even just washes every insect off every time it rains. I see on the outside of the fruit. Then we wouldn't have to spray them that often. And if anything, we would have to just spray them with water when it doesn't rain, which we probably do anyways, and we would wash off all the pest insects. It's not uh, harmful for the environment. It's not harmful for the consumer. So it could be a really nice how to have better protected crops for a future.
0: That was Dr Ulrika Bauer from the University of Bristol and Ulrika kindly sent over some incredible photos and videos from her research which I highly recommend having a look at in the show notes on our website. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast Find us online at geneticsunzipped.com and on Twitter at GeneticsUnzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show. We've heard a lot from Ulrika about the slippery sides of the pitcher plant that cause insects to fall into the bottom of the champagne flute. But what happens to them once they've fallen in? Dr. Kadim Gilbert is an ecologist and evolutionary biologist at Michigan State University who's been researching the pool of digestive juices. And it turns out that it's not only a place where insects drown and get digested by the pitcher plant, it's also home to a whole community of living things that are able to survive despite the harsh conditions, as I found out from Kadim. What is it like in the liquid bit at the bottom of a pitcher plant. What is happening in those juices at the bottom of the champagne flute we've just been learning about?
2: Well, to start with, the plant is producing different digestive enzymes, including chitinases, which break down the shells of insects, but also fungi are made out of chitin. So there might be some antifungal properties to those as well. The pH level can vary widely between species. So subspecies are relatively moderate and moderate for a pitcher plant as between four and five.
0: So what do we know that's around pH four or five?
2: Four or five is more like uh, tomato juice and six, seven, you can see in a really old pitcher, which is basically water at that point. The extreme goes to two and below and below two, is when you get closer to battery acid, if you actually reach pH one.
0: Yeah, like that's, is, is pH two, is that about stomach acid? Is stomach acid yes. pH one?
2: Yeah, stomach acid's between one and two in that region.
0: Far from my little champagne flute of acids and digestive enzymes being sterile, as I thought it was, you're telling me there's a load of stuff living in the liquid. So to start off with, what is, able to survive in that liquid?
2: Yeah, so it's definitely quite a paradox that they have these deadly traps, but life is pretty ubiquitous in that habitat as well. So there's specialized insects that live in there as larvae, different types of mosquitoes and flies, uh, which are able to survive in there. And not to mention all of the different microbes. You've got bacteria, you have some fungi, yeasts living there, there's also algae. And how
0: are they able to survive in this place that has evolved to kill things?
2: Right, we know basically nothing about the physiology of the symbionts at this point, and, right? So it's really only in the past 10 years or so that we've gotten a picture of the diversity of microbes living in the pitcher plants. So this has largely been using meta-barcoding So for bacteria, we use the 16S ribosomal region and 18S for eukaryotic organisms. So
0: you're looking at the genetic code that codes for ribosomes, the protein making bits.
2: Right. It's a vital function, so it can't mutate too quickly, but it evolves enough that we can at least separate different families of bacteria from one another. Kind of a similar level of resolution for insects. But yeah, this just gives us a snapshot of all the DNA that's in the picture.
0: And what does it look like to meta-barcode a picture plant? what i've got my plant in my pot or in the jungle what do i do
2: well when you're in the field you take a sterile pipette to suck up that pitcher fluid and one of the great things about this technique is that you don't necessarily even need to take the insects out of it because all of the dna is dissolved in the fluid um including things that may have Been in the pitcher a week before you got there, right?
0: So you've got your pipette full of dirty insect pitcher juice in the tropical rainforest where nothing is clean and nothing is sterile. What do you do?
2: Yeah, you just quickly transfer it into a sterile uh, falcon tube and adding a type of preservative, but you try to get it back to a lab as quickly as we can.
0: And then once they're back in the lab... Is there a mystery black box you put it in and it prints out some results for you? Is that how genetics works nowadays? Because I know it's changed since I learned.
2: (laughs) You know, there's nice kits that you can use for doing various extraction protocols.
0: And then what comes back? What's on the piece of paper that you read off?
2: You have so much data that you have to use bioinformatics pipelines to first um, basically You read in the raw sequence data, you determine a threshold at which you want to assign your operational taxonomic units.
0: That's a what is a species type thing.
2: Right. We decide, say, if sequences share 97% similarity, this is a species for your your purposes. And then you can bend them in different ways. And then you get your table where you have OTU 5489. Blah, blah, whatever.
0: So it doesn't give you, you've got this group of fungi here, you've got this, it, it just gives you what, d- DNA sequences uh, out the end?
2: Yeah, so first you assign your OTUs, and then afterwards you use BLAST or some sort of search program to say, oh, what is this OTU closest to?
0: So you use genetic Google to convert your sequences into like actual living thing names
2: right exactly and then you get varying success with different otus some sequences are ambiguous and uh you just say oh this is a bacteria but we don't know what yeah
0: presumably hundreds of them are just unknown to science You're looking for all living things in a rainforest. There is absolutely no way we know what every species is living in a rainforest.
2: Right, exactly. So for the insects, we see that we'd be able to identify more of the insects to a finer resolution. But as you say, for bacteria, there's a high likelihood that something and they're truly just unknown to science. But you must
0: have an idea of how many species or these groupings of living things are living within a pitcher plant, even if you can't name what the individuals are. So how many yes. are we talking? There's a dozen bacterial species. Way there's more. a hundred bacterial species. What are we talking? More.
2: <laughs> more along the order of magnitude of in the thousands.
0: Okay, so there's quite a lot of stuff that you're finding in these pitcher plants, but that's just finding the DNA of it. And presumably, the things that fell in the picture and died are still going to leave their dna in the picture plant so how on earth do you work out which of these operational taxonomic units which of these species were living inside the digestive acid juices and which ones had just fallen in and have been eaten by the plant
2: very true it's difficult and maybe not actually possible to distinguish fully with this approach So I have some ongoing work using a transcriptomic approach. So you can look at RNA and then RNA is very short-lived. So if you're finding an RNA signature of a microorganism, then the chances are it's still alive. So
0: thinking from the plant perspective, you briefly mentioned that they, just like we delegate to our gut microbes a lot of our digestion tasks that the pitcher plants might be delegating some of their digestion to the stuff living in it which is wild i mean it kind of makes sense when you think like well of course they're going to do that evolution loves doing that kind of thing but also i'm like that's so weird a plant having a living gut microflora How does that work? What is it that the bacteria and the microbes are able to do that the plant can't? What are they getting out of the relationship?
2: Yeah, so I'll start by referencing the North American pitcher plants, the species that you can find around Michigan and throughout the Northeast. It has very mildly acidic fluid and doesn't produce a lot of its own enzymes. Well, there's there's some controversy of that. It, it may produce no enzymes or may produce just very little enzymes. So in that case, it's relying entirely on bacteria and midge larvae to break down food for it. So aquatic insects, their waste, it comes out as ammonia, but ammonia is a particularly assimilable form for a plant. So by converting the dead insects into ammonia, then that can be uptaken much more quickly by the plant. But it is complicated, though, because as you uh, allude to, the, as far as evolution is concerned, if you can get as much out of it as you want without concerning the other organisms around you, then, then, then you will.
0: And thinking of the pitcher like the gut, are there good microbes and bad microbes to colonise a pitcher? from the plant's perspective. Yeah, I,
2: again, there's much to be done in terms of the actual fitness benefits and costs of the specific microbes in there. I can note one observation I made in one study where um, within one greenhouse, some species had pitchers with a very brightly colored fluid, like a bright neon green or, or a neon orange, just very striking coloration in the the pitcher fluid. I thought that maybe, you know, maybe there's a certain microbe colonizing them that's responsible for the color, but that doesn't seem to be the case here. So other studies that had noticed coloration like this that actually did the chemistry, it seems likely that the color is by this other compound, drosserone, which is induced by insects, and has an antifungal property. And then what I saw with my data is the colored pitcher fluid had more fungus gnat DNA, because then there were still fungus gnats getting into the greenhouse, but there were five specific fungal OTUs that were reduced in abundance in just the colored pitcher fluid. So that drosterone may not be a broad-acting fungicide, but some fungi are (laughs) very actively destroyed in these particular pitchers producing this compound. Yeah, a next step would be, can we isolate these and then see, do these steal more nutrients from the pitcher? And would that be a reason for producing the antifungal?
0: Who knew pitcher plants could be so useful? Thanks to Dr. Kadeem Gilbert from Michigan State University. And finally, we're moving away from pitcher plants and looking at another group of carnivorous plants that trap their prey in a completely different way, and that's the sun Jews. I had a chat with Dr. Tanya Renner from Pennsylvania State University, who's interested not only in how these plants evolved, but also whether we can add carnivorous genes into non-carnivorous plants what kind
3: of carnivorous plants are you interested in? Because there are lots in the world. (laughs) Yeah, we mostly study the sticky ones. So those that have trichomes on them, sticky trichomes, which are plant hairs.
0: Are trichomes only found on carnivorous plants?
3: No, many plants have trichomes. Uh, Your basic tomato plant has sticky trichomes as well. So this is a, a way that plants usually use to protect themselves against herbivores. That would be Crawling on the leaf surface or on the stem surface.
0: What are the sorts of carnivorous
3: plants that use stickiness? Two basic ones that folks might be familiar with are sundews, then those have lots of sticky hairs on them. And then there's the butterworts, and those also have sticky hairs. They're different morphologically, so how they look, the internal structure of them, but generally they look like a little hair that has stickiness at the very end of them, a droplet of, of dew.
0: We know about picture plants, the insect falls in and gets digested and then you can absorb it through the liquid. We're all very familiar with Venus fly traps, it gets trapped and then the plant can absorb the nutrition that way. How does a sundew go about trapping its insect and eating it?
3: Right, so sundews are pretty exciting and interesting because they actually can curl with their stocked glands over a trapped piece of prey, so an insect. And so uh, they basically try to get as much surface area on the insect as possible. And the dew on the ends of those trichomes smother the insect and they're not able to get away, at least very easily. (laughs) It's like a fly stuck on flypaper. Once you've got the insect stuck, Mm -hmm. how does it eat it? Right, so those glands have multiple rows. They have the sticky role, and then they have the other role where they can excrete digestive enzymes from those same glands, and then also absorb nutrients from the digested prey through that gland. So I guess in that terms, they have three different roles, sticking, digesting, and absorbing how on earth does that evolve? Where did these digestive enzymes come from? What were they being used for before? So we think that the ancestor of carnivorous plants likely had these sticky glands that were involved in defense. And then over time, they were evolved special roles to be able to move enzymes out of them and to absorb nutrients into them and some other unusual things about some of the carnivorous glands is that uh, they can have conductive tissue associated with them and so when you say conductive tissue is conducting what <laughs> conducting electricity no so conducting fluid that would be it. okay and so for example in the sundews they have what is called xylem and we know xylem moves water and other dissolved nutrients throughout the plant and so this is kind of a weird thing for a trichome to have. And so there's some ideas that possibly the stocked glands of sundew might actually be a modified leaf, like a little leaflet.
0: So you think an early carnivorous plant would have had these hairs or leaflets that were exuding these digestive or these sticky substances, we should say, how does it then absorb the nutrition from that? Because I don't think of a plant as having like a gut. So why would it be
3: producing digestive enzymes? So all plants make defensive enzymes. And what's really interesting about those enzymes that we find in uh, the fluid of carnivorous plants is that many of those proteins that are doing the digesting belong to the same protein families as these defensive genes in non-carnivorous plants. So we think that defensive genes that underlie these proteins, that they were co-opted or taken for a new function, that being used for digestion. And so by having some conductive tissue, this may have pushed for some of these proteins to actually be exported to the outside of the plant body. And because of those conductive tissues, at least in some carnivores, these glands have those. That may also help with absorbing the digested nutrients on the outside of the plant and bringing them to the inside of the plant.
0: So, the same tubes that are delivering these chemicals can also suck them back in again?
3: Yes, that's the idea. <laughs> again, we're still learning a lot about this.
0: <laughs> this is a theme it seems among carnivorous plant researchers is that no one, no one know. really knows. <laughs> yeah, and I suppose the bit that I couldn't quite work out is that they're not, I shouldn't think of them as digestive enzymes. They're first and foremost defense enzymes. And it just so happens that a plant's way of defending itself against these herbivores happens to also yeah. involve digesting right.
3: them. Right, so a lot of these activities of these defensive genes could be acting against these insect herbivores. So when an insect is biting on a plant and digesting that tissue, they could be uptaking these defensive proteins and then they go into the stomach of the insect and can be digesting the insect from their stomach outwards. (laughs) And that will make the insect really sick and keep them from wanting to eat more of that plant. No kidding. That is incredible. Now you've been looking
0: at digestive enzymes and defensive enzymes in carnivorous plants, but now you're taking them out of carnivorous plants and putting them into crop plants. Tell me more about that.
3: (laughs) All right. So one of the things that we're really interested in is whether or not we can take these genes that are used in carnivory and put them into crop plants. And so we've been working with a model system, that being tobacco, to try and get these carnivorous genes into tobacco. And so what we want to see is that if we put some of these digestive enzymes in tobacco, does that actually help tobacco be more resistant to herbivorous insects than if it was just using its own defensive proteins?
0: And I have to ask why tobacco? Because it's a plant that I see, hopefully we won't be growing too much of in the future.
3: (laughs) Yeah, so it is considered a genetic model because it's really, good for understanding protein functions. And so we're started there. And then we're interested in moving to other plants that are related to tobacco, like tomato. And so that would be a, a next second plant to try this in.
0: So how do you go about working out which genes are the ones that you need cuz it's it's never going right. to be you need just one gene there'll be like the gene <laughs> and to there make are the lots protein of genes. <laughs> and the gene to move the protein around yeah. and then the gene to turn on the gene that makes mm-hmm. the protein so how do you work out the which ones are necessary and then how do you go about actually putting that not only in the tobacco genome but that it gets expressed in the right
3: place right so this is a conundrum because there are thousands of genes right And so one of the things that we're working with Ulrika and then also another collaborator at the University of Würzburg, Kenji Fukushima, is to figure out which types of enzymes are shared across distantly related carnivorous plants. So we're kind of whittling it down to groups of proteins that have actually convergently evolved to be present in the digestive fluid of distantly related carnivorous plants. And The way to get it into tobacco is we make a construct that has that carnivorous plant gene in it. And then we actually put it into agrobacterium and use agrobacterium to infect these carnivorous plants that we have in the lab. And agrobacterium mediated transformation is what we use to try and get these genes into the tobacco.
0: They work kind of like viruses, don't they? They, they, You're hijacking a natural bacterial I'm just going to insert my own DNA in so you can replicate it right
3: exactly yeah so now it's not actually going into the genome of tobacco but on that construct there is a uh, promoter on there that helps turn on that gene and so we're hoping that it gets into the plant body and that we can confirm these things and we're just starting that right now we don't have our carnivorous tobacco yet but we're we're getting close
0: and Why, other than the fact that it gives you a great opportunity to learn more about carnivorous plants, why might you want to make non-carnivorous plants carnivorous?
3: (laughs) So one of the big things that we're really interested in is preserving our crops and feeding lots and lots of people. And so we want to figure out if there are natural proteins that exist in plants that are here today you know, on earth, if we can use those to help protect our food. And so one idea is that, Once we can confirm this happens in a model, we would want to try maybe tomato, for example, and other types of crops. And so we're trying to develop a way to understand and to protect plants from insects. So
0: 10 years down the line, are we going to have greenhouses of tomatoes that not only stop insects in their tracks that are trying to eat them so we don't have to spray pesticides but also then eat the
3: insects and get more nutrition (laughs) so we don't have to apply fertilizers is that gonna happen (laughs) that would be fantastic and that is the ultimate goal (laughs) but that would be great right to be able to have this dual function enzyme that is involved in protecting but also bringing in essential nutrients to the plant
0: and Tomatoes would be your first choice of like commercial crop because it is so closely related as a species
3: to tobacco.
0: Tomatoes are also in the same family as potatoes, right?
3: Yeah, solanaceae. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So does
0: that mean that we can also have our carnivorous
3: chips with our carnivorous ketchup? (laughs) Potentially. So again, we're using model plants that have these sticky glands. And so the idea is that if we Focus on those plants for now, since our carnivorous plants also have sticky glands, that perhaps those sticky glands will allow these crop plants to be able to export these digestive enzymes to the outside of those plants. I
0: love the idea of a carnivorous tomato. Thanks to Dr. Tanya Renner. That's all for now. Thanks to our guests Ulrika Bauer, Kadeem Gilbert and Tanya Renner and we'll be back next time when Kat will be investigating the genetics behind animal instincts. For more information about this podcast including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else head over to GeneticsUnzipped.com You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip, and please take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or review us on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference and it helps more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written, presented and produced by me, Sally LePage. It's made by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, the logo was designed by James Mail, and audio production was by Emma Werner. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.